Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. No power Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. The meaning of life is that it stops, wrote Franz Kafka. Yet, in contemporary American culture, little is said in everyday life about death. In a culture focused on staying youthful, it can be hard to talk about dying. And death itself often happens outside of the context of most people's daily experiences. So unlike our ancestors, many people in the U.S. today often go years without witnessing a person's death or the process of dying. On today's show, we'll meet two people who have dedicated themselves to creating compassionate conversations about dying as part of the global death cafe movement. At death cafes, people gather to eat cake, drink tea or coffee, and discuss death. The goal is to increase awareness of death with a view to helping people make the most of their finite lives. Since 2011, volunteers have offered more than 16,000 death cafes in 85 countries around the world. I'm glad to have two Wisconsin Death Cafe leaders with us today to give us a sense of what a death cafe is like and how the conversations that happen there transform participants. We have with us Deirdre Jenkins in Eau Claire, who is a certified conscious dying coach and death doula. She also hosts the O-Death Death Cafe in Eau Claire. Thank you so much for joining us, Deirdre. Thanks for having me, Douglas. And Karen Reppin is here with me in the studio today in Madison. She's a hospice communications professional and volunteer. She leads a Madison Death Cafe and is a board member of the National End of Life Doula Alliance. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks for being with us. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. If you have a question for my guests about death cafes or having conversations about dying, or you want to share a personal experience that was transformative for you, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. So I just mentioned that there's this global uh, group or movement to organize death cafes. Deirdre, uh, it would be great if we could start off having you tell us a little bit more about what a death cafe is and what the origin of this phenomenon is. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, So Death Cafe was started by John Underwood in Hackney, East London, and I believe that was in 2011. Um, He had a passion for talking about death, and interestingly, he... Um, died unexpected unexpectedly at an early age, uh, which I think, from my understanding, was a real gift to his mother and sister, who now actually um, kind of hold the larger umbrella of the Death Cafe movement. There, uh, I think it really helped everyone a lot, <laughs> having been participating in that movement before he unexpectedly died. Um, So you really actually hit on a number of things in your introduction about Death Cafe being a nonprofit organization. It's also something that's called a social franchise, which means that anyone who wants to go to the deathcafe.com website 
and uh, review all of the the guide the guidelines for hosting a death cafe. Anyone can do that. Um, they do request that it is something that's held in an accessible, respectful, and confidential space, and that it is um, hosted in a way that is not uh, intending in to lead anyone to any particular kind of conclusion or a product or any kind of course of action. And of course, cake and tea are a big part of the Death Cafe. And here in Eau Claire, um, it didn't take long for other members of the community to want to jump in and say, I'll make the cake. <laughs> I'll bring the cake next time. Uh, it's really been a lot of fun, actually, to include people in the community that way. Great. Thanks for sharing that experience there. Fun might not be the first thing that comes <laughs> to mind when people hear this notion of the Death Cafe. Tell us about more about that community that has evolved there in Eau Claire around this idea of getting together to talk about death. Well, um, oh, in Eau Claire? Or? Yes, in, yeah. in Eau Claire. Sure. Um, so this this in-person cafe has only been held just over the past year. Um, and it has been uh, held in the public library downtown here, which is just an incredible place to hold it because everybody can find it. <laughs> everybody knows where the library is. And... Um, the folks who have attended the Death Cafe, we've had, I'm going to say, maybe a core of about a half a dozen people who come very regularly. And others who come and drop in, you know, periodically or come in for just having the first time experience of sitting at a Death Cafe. Um, and so some of the people have gotten very involved and, uh, and really have taken a kind of ownership of it in that way, including uh, helping host the Death Cafe and, as I said, making cake for the Death Cafe and um, other things like that. And there's an online guide and principles associated with this movement. What are the principles or what does the guide include? Can you tell us, Karen, when you first started this, a little bit more about like what you had to work with? Well, sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, Anybody, as, as Deirdre said, there's this incredibly detailed guide online that really asks people to go. Uh, I mean, you can, it's, it's turnkey. Anybody can do it. Um, I did a little different um, process here because I was uh, volunteering uh, in uh, hospice care at the time. And met a bunch of other people that wanted to explore their own feelings about end of life and wanted to bring in friends. You know, it's one of those things where people don't really want to talk about it, they say. But the minute you open that door, it's amazing how there's just a pent-up demand. Mm -hmm. There's a well of curiosity. And so we decided to um, look at the Death Cafe model but many of us were involved in a contemplative practice in one of the Buddhist sanghas here, and um, some other people were working with um, council circles and thought that they wanted to incorporate a little bit more, uh, maybe, ceremony into the mm -hmm. process. And so we 
did sort of a hybrid, but it was very much based on the principles that you can find online for the actual death cafe. Uh-huh. And what would some of those principles be, Deirdre, that Karen just mentioned? Well, I'd say that the principles have to do with um, folks really concentrating on listening and uh, having as much of a non-judgmental attitude as possible with the other participants. And I'll just say that everybody comes with their own stories and experiences to a death cafe. And they're all very unique. Um, There are similarities as well. Um, But sometimes people do come in... um, with quite a bit of grief around difficult deaths and sometimes they might their grief might be um kind of directed at people in the public it could be um police it could be you know people who kind of showed up at the time of the death and that that was difficult for the person so so that's something that has happened here before is um hearing stories like that. So having a non-judgmental attitude is a really important part of participating in a death cafe. Um, you were really just here to listen and let people have their own experiences and stories. Um, I think other guidelines are there, you know, there's not really that many of them to be honest. It's just basically, um, show up, uh, have, enjoy the cake and enjoy the conversation and try to be respectful. Karen, would you like to add to that? I would agree. Um, And just so you know, we actually had coffee and cookies as well as cake. So no. (laughs) Um, All all sweets are are welcome. Um, But yeah, it's one thing that it's important to do when initially introducing people to uh, the conversation is to say this isn't meant to be a grief therapy um, or a counseling session. We aren't really problem solving. What we're doing is exploring. And so there are facilitators and people like you and me, Deirdre, and some of the people that are coming to your death cafes probably who have the responsibility of of just sort of keeping things from, I I don't want to say going off the rails, but there are sometimes people who have very strong opinions and they they will want to um, share them and maybe teach and preach. And that isn't what this is about. This is more about, this is what I'm looking at in, you know, my heart and mind and trying to figure out what death means to me. You know, I call myself a death awareness educator, basically. And it's all about people finding their their own core beliefs around end of life, which in our culture, we are not encouraged to explore that very well. And so a lot of people will come in with very, very strong opinions. Um, Deirdre, I don't know if you get this, but so often people will come in and well, maybe we can talk a little bit about the format. I think probably both of us, you know, invite people in in some way, welcome them, and then ask them, what what brought you here? I mean, here is a beautiful summer evening, and um, you could be out doing something else, and you're in this group talking about death? What's with that? With and, strangers, yeah, potentially, right? <laughs> right, with yeah. strangers. And... Um, 
So we invite people to share why it is. And, and what Deirdre said is there's people there who are experiencing grief or who have been diagnosed with a terminal illness or have somebody else that they're providing care to or um, they're just curious about this incredible gap in awareness that we have. And so asking a little bit about you know, why people came often brings up topics that will later be used by the facilitators to open up the conversation. Um, there are so many questions. I mean, early on, we had a whole list that we thought we were going to follow. And we really thought we were going to have this be a lot more structured mm -hmm. than it ended up being. All it is is just open the door and it's a springboard. You know, one person will tell a story and that will click with somebody else and that'll, you know, prompt another story. And just to be able to, to hear people talk about their own experiences and their own wonderings. Um, I guess I did want to say that a lot of people come in and say, I don't want to die like that. Hmm. You know, they have this this idea of, of a bad death. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times we start talking about, okay, so what would a good death be? And that expands over time because I think initially a lot of people might say, well, I just want to, you know, I want to die in my sleep. I don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> I know it's going to happen, but I don't want to be there. Um, uh, or they want, they really want medical, uh, medical aid in dying mm -hmm. or something like that. And after they listen to other people's stories, they may come away with a greater appreciation of what dying can be more expansive and, and not just a horrible negative experience. And then that starts to influence how they live. Because opening the door to death really is opening the door to um, a fuller life, I think. There's so much to dig into there, what you just said, Karen. I want to reintroduce you both, first of all, though. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Wisconsin Death Cafe leaders Deirdre Jenkins and Karen Reppin. We're talking about how death cafes and other kinds of structured conversations can help us navigate death and dying. And we would appreciate hearing your questions and experiences. Please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. So, Deirdre, uh, feel free to build on whatever you would like to with about what Karen just said there. Um, but I'm also interested in hearing your perspective in uh, those conversation starters, what happens, how the conversation gets going. Uh, I chose to talk about death because is one way just to get people talking, right? I saw that posted on the Death Cafe website. But what else have you experienced in terms of the ways these conversations get started? Well, yeah, Karen said something that I, um, as she said it, I said, I thought, oh, yeah, that's exactly like one of the top guidelines, which is that when you're facilitating a death cafe, you really don't have an, an agenda for the death cafe. You don't come with a bunch of, you know, places. This is where we're going to go. This, these are things we're going to talk about today. Um, there is only one question, and that is, what brought you here today to talk about death? And for me, facilitating a death cafe, I I always tell that to everybody at the beginning. And, um, and then I sit with the the group and I um, 
I listen to what's going on for people and I use their stories and I use their um, curiosities basically to help build on a conversation with a group. And we set our, we set our cafe up um, with different tables. So I can't sit at every table. There are some times when I walk around to different tables, but I have people who are, um, who are familiar with the Deaf Cafe and the guidelines sit at each table so that they can kind of help facilitate. And uh, so that's generally where we start is just with a person at each table who can help keep the conversation going based on the things that the people at the table want to talk about. And Karen also said something else too, is that sometimes people do, um, they do get rolling on certain subjects and sometimes those subjects really can start to veer off a little bit um, into just kind of different areas. And so we try to rein it back in and um, include everybody else in the conversation so that everybody does have a chance to bring up whatever is on their heart and mind that day. Um, yeah, so just, I really listened. And so every everything is different. Some people come in with uh, a family member who they think is um, probably not far from death. And maybe that family member doesn't want to have a conversation about it, but they do. And so the whole group will sit and listen to that. And, and sometimes the whole group will even say, well, if that was me in that situation, I might I might do something like this. So there are occasions in which we do have a little bit of feedback if somebody wants to hear what other people say. Yeah. I'm imagining that situation you just described, and I'm really curious about what is powerful about talking to a group of people you may not know versus mm -hmm. um, talking to people you are intimate with or with loved ones. Um, what comes out that may be harder in actually in the context of friends or family and how does how does the conversation evolve differently because you're in this more public setting Karen do you have any thoughts about yeah, that I do I it's interesting because very often people will come in and say I can't you know I I want to talk to my parents about this or I want to talk to my kids about this or my best friend or whatever and they're surprised when they get a lot of pushback and say, I don't want to talk about that. Um, oh, we don't have to worry about that. And, um, you know, it may be a really troubling thing. And that's why, I'm, you know, beginning to, to have these conversations with whomever you can have the conversation with can help because understanding that we all have different beliefs, different core beliefs about it, and the way excavating how we acquire those beliefs and whether they're good for us or not or what we're looking for in the future um, it's really important to to really parse this out in in uh, very carefully and so if one person comes in and says you know I tried to talk to my parents about this because I'm really worried about you know their health and blah 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 and they don't want to talk to me about it just being able to say that to a lot of people and not have it be your own family, you know, like a sister or brother or the other parent. And mm -hmm. there's all those family dynamics that will either shut it down or start other trouble in mm -hmm. the family. 
with public, you've got all different scenarios. Somebody else will say, oh, yeah, my mom keeps wanting me to talk about this with her, and I'm the one that doesn't want to talk about it. And, um, you know, other people saying, every time I, I look at this person, I, I, I have to leave because I know they're dying, and I want to talk to them, but I don't have any idea what to say. And so it just, it just opens up all of these threads that somehow start weaving together something that becomes a strong fabric. And if people come back, and, and as Deirdre said, you know, there's people that come back. We had, we were really lucky. Um, the group that I was with held Death Cafes monthly for over six and a half years before COVID shut us down. And we didn't, we chose not to do, for whatever reason, we didn't do online Zoom death cafes. And there are online death cafes. So it's not like if it doesn't happen in your community, it doesn't mean you can't participate mm-hmm. in this. Um, just, I guess, Google it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but, but I think that's one of the things you've got. We try to create a very safe and welcoming place because there are these guidelines that say we're not judging, we're not trying to preach to you, we're not trying to convince you to think a certain way. We're here to allow people to explore and discover what they own, what they they believe and see if it's working and boy, you might come up with something or girl or them, whatever. <laughs> come up with something um, different and believe me, you can say, what's your idea of a good death? And I've been asking that question to other people and to myself for years now, and it changes all the time. One thing that comes to mind listening to you just now, Karen, is that historically religious communities have been the place that many people have uh, attained their notions uh, about death or religious communities have been the ones that provide the support or the end-of-life care. Uh, And you were just talking about how um, it's very important in these death cafes that people are not there to proselytize or say there's this one way you should think about what happens when you die. Um, What ways have religious understandings both informed your experiences in these death cafes? And does, does it ever cause trouble or conflict? Um, either one of you, if if there's something that comes to mind, could jump in here. Deirdre, you want to talk? I, I definitely would love to share about it, but Deirdre, go ahead. Well, I have my own personal um, beliefs, just like everybody else. And honestly, as a death doula, my um, objective is to not bring my beliefs into the situation. <laughs> it is really to to meld with and support other people's beliefs and for them to own their own beliefs, to explore their beliefs and to, um, to bring those in, however, is right for them. Um, so I don't have any kind of a, um, I don't have any kind of a, an agenda where that is concerned. And I don't, I don't really bring it up unless for some reason my beliefs fit into a story that I'm telling uh, or something like that. I'm usually very reserved about that and really kind of give the space to everybody else. Karen, do you want to say more about that yourself? Yeah, I just think that um, in in our case, we were very, um, 
uh, as I said, we we sort of developed this hybrid based on a, a group of people who were actually exploring impermanence through Buddhist practice, um, which already says, okay, there's there's a philosophy that's got a little bit of influence here. But we were also very, very aware that there are infinite cultural uh, elements that influence the way that we believe this. And it's not just faith and religion. Um, and it, it can be fa- family to family. It can mm-hmm. be person to person. But the cultural aspects really, um, in some ways, you know, people are... are miles ahead of people who, I mean, they, they, they may feel really prepared because they've been taught something um, or, or experienced different traditions that give a framework that is wonderful to them. Now, they may hear something different around these tables and want to explore that too. Um, I think what's, what's the big the biggest challenge when looking at these kinds of things is if you have somebody who's really adamant and they're proselytizing and they're saying this is the way it is and, and might get into some of the nitty-gritty aspects of the dogma of their faith. Mm-hmm. And then um, that's when facilitating gets interesting and, and just, again, being generous. Uh, you know, our guidelines are saying be generous, listen carefully, and Speak carefully, um, and just remember that we're not all the same here. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Deirdre Jenkins and Karen Reppin about death cafes. They're both death cafe leaders and Um, people who have devoted much of their personal and public lives to thinking about and helping people with the concept and experience of death. If you'd like to join our conversation, please do write in on Twitter or Facebook or give us a call. We'd love to hear from you, 608-256-2001, extension 9, with questions or just experiences that you would like to share. And we did have a listener... Maurice, who shared a comment with us uh, a minute ago, Maurice says, this is a very valuable conversation because we are all in a death cafe. He says, the climate crisis means that we are all in a death cafe and we need to be able to talk about it so we can handle it better. And Deirdre, um, you indicated that you'd like to say uh, something to Maurice. Go ahead. Well, I would. Um I would hope that we are all in a death cafe (laughs) around this subject in particular, because we are living in the sixth extinction um, as, as we are hearing. Um, One of the other things that I do that we didn't bring up and at the beginning is that I do facilitate uh, Joanna Macy's, the work that reconnects. And so that is a, um, that is work around uh, climate issues, particularly an industrial civilization and the collapse of industrial civilization and the climate. And um, I have definitely woven in a lot of conversations uh, with Death Cafe around that subject and, and bringing in, um, I have hosted 
like death cath phase combined with the work that reconnects with practices from that uh, that are practices that basically are, are questions or processes to go through um, that help people to say what they need to say about about what's going on. Um, we're hearing so much. It's such an overwhelming time, um, I think, for so many people in so many ways. And so having these uh, conversations and ways to navigate through them that really help people get to in deeper into their heart and to help them um, have a safe place to speak about that is so incredibly important I think these days I can't tell you how frequently in death cafes I have had people say to me will you please host a death cafe around the climate you know around this extinction or uh, what's going on on the planet. People ask for it all of the time. Karen? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that uh, is exciting about this because it's a spring, death cafes, these conversations can be springboards for a lot of other initiatives. Uh, I worked with um, one of the co-facilitators um, of the death cafes and did presentations and workshops around different topics uh, uh, that dealt with end of life. And there are so many resources now. I mean, one of the buzzwords is the death positive mo movement. And mm -hmm. there are, I mean, if you, again, <laughs> Google anything like this, there are so many resources um, that allow people to explore different aspects of um, the way people die in our culture, in other cultures. And, you know, it's we, we know so much now um, about other ways of dying than what probably the dominant culture in North America is used to seeing. Um, Deirdre, I don't know if you incorporated any of Francis Weller's work. Um, he wrote a book called The Wild Edge of Sorrow and talks about the gates to grief. And one of his, one of the gates to grief has to do not, I mean, there, a lot of them are things when people die or whatever, but there's also things about the way that the world is dying now. And um, these are, you know, compounding things. I mean, what we've just, I mean, Walking in here today and wearing a mask is, um, it's, we don't forget that we have just spent three plus years in a COVID pandemic mm -hmm. and it isn't over. Uh, we want it to be. It's kind of like we want grief to be over. Mm -hmm. um, and there's all these mysterious myths and misconceptions about what's real and what isn't. And one of them is, is this world at a tipping point that we've never, you know, in the human experience, have we ever been in this kind of uh, dire, precarious position? Because we all know, even though we don't necessarily integrate it fully, we all know that death is something that we do. When, if you're born, you're gonna die. Um, how you die, when you die, where you die, all of that is different. And so the universal, but then is is different than the individual. But then we start talking about this whole global situation, 
And that opens up a whole nother can of worms. Absolutely. And and your conversation with each other there and Maurice's comment, uh, thank you, Maurice, for that, reminds me of a conversation I've had with students a lot, uh, reading a book called Learning to Die in the Anthropocene by Roy Scranton, which is all about the death of our so-called civilization, right? And, and learning to accept that. And Roy Scranton describes his own process as a soldier in Iraq, having to face his own death, um, going out on patrol every day, and how that was pivotal for him in thinking about learning to accept the death of the current social and economic arrangements of the the capitalist system that we live in. And, and it's Undeniably true, as you said, Deirdre, we're living in, in a sixth extinction. And as you said, Karen, that's unprecedented in human experience over the 200,000 years or so that Homo sapiens has been around. And we do have to do some serious thinking and reflection about how to handle that, right? Um, and Roy Scranton argues that it's opportunity for rebirth. And I, I think that might be an interesting direction for us to go, you know, not in a personal sense, but an op- opportunity for civilizational rebirth. And you were mentioning earlier, Karen, that uh, what these conversations often lead to is the idea of having a fuller life. Uh, I'd love to hear some stories or moments that stand out to both of you where that has really been where the conversation has gone in these death cafes, where, where it's not so much about that processing that moment of death, that's important, obviously, but that leads to some reflection back on, well, how am I living my life right now? Karen, go ahead. Well, I, a couple of things. One is relationships with people who, uh, the relationships we have with others. Uh, I just remember 20 years ago, I, I self-identify as 20 years ago, I was the most death-phobic person on the planet. I had people in my life that I knew were dying or aging or ill or injured or whatever. And the minute I saw something that looked like an ending, I was out of there. I couldn't, I was really, really enmeshed in the stronger, younger, we're, I don't want to go to that other place. And so not being able to have, I mean, I wasn't able to have relationships with people. When I found out they were sick or whatever, I couldn't be with them. That was a terrible thing. I hated myself for that. Um, so being, finally being around people that could with people who were dying and who could talk about it and tell me about their experience and everything gave me, I guess, some courage to keep looking and wishing that that was, you know, that I could acquire some of that skill because I really didn't have it. And I also have to say is that I grew up across the street from a cemetery and I lived on a dead end street. So it was death on dead on both ends. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> but it didn't help because I was just really, I had such an aversion. But now I, I, I think these conversations give space for us to look at the way that we live, the choices we make, and say, these have consequences. You know, I kind of said, oh, yeah, I'll worry about it some other time. Well, I'm now old enough <laughs> to know that I have a whole lot more time behind me than I do in front of me. A whole lot more. I probably have 15, 20 years. As I, I said to you earlier, I have longevity in my mm-hmm. family, but my 72nd birthday is coming up in a month. That's 
how the heck did that happen? I didn't swear. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you managed to avoid Yes. Um, you know, and so that's another thing. It's like I'm looking at if, if, if I have death on my shoulder, if death is my companion, if death is my friend, I can say I'm 72 and I need to make the most out of what I'm doing. And I live in a culture where you don't do that. It's always bigger, better, more. There's just more, more, you know, the consume the time. Well, how am I going to consume the time? I do not want to be in my last weeks, months, whatever, and have huge regrets. It's not to say I won't, and it's not to say that I'm making the most out of every moment. I'm glad to be here today. I think this is making a good, this is a good faith effort in doing something worthwhile um, in my life. So I won't regret this. But boy, I'll tell you, there are things that I've probably done today that maybe I could have made a different choice. And so thinking about where I go with my moments do I waste them like I like they're never ending or do I honor them and as something so precious as a gift that you know I mean who's to what is this life you know you start looking at this and say this is a rare thing so it sounds like it galvanizes perspective the mm-hmm. conversation mm-hmm. about death about what you're living right here right now um, thank you for sharing your personal mm-hmm. story as a response to that question. I'll turn it to you, Deirdre, and you can either share your own story or, or share what you've heard in the Death Cafes about the way these conversations about death lead to a sense of a fuller life. Well, it's hard for me to um, to not uh, basically speak along those same lines that, that Karen just did because I... I'm a little bit the opposite of Karen, that I was not a death phobic person. Um, I was exposed to death um, pretty early in my life, uh, particularly with the death of my father at age seven. And then um, I had a, uh, a life-threatening disease in which I was um, very lucky even to live through that. I was the 12th person in the world to have a treatment for it and if a specific treatment that they came up with for it. And if I hadn't had that, I probably would not be here. Um, I I think I would have probably died pretty early because I would have been very uh, incapacitated. I was completely paralyzed um, by that illness. But um, so there's something about that that gave me a real curiosity about death And then when I was 17, I was working in a, what was called a convalescent home in Morro Bay, California. And I had a a patient there named Zenith, who was probably in her 90s, I'm thinking. And she was at the end of her life. And I remember the nurses being very frustrated with her. Um, that she was no longer taking any uh, food or or water. She was refusing food and water. And I was fascinated by Zenith. There was nothing I wanted to do more than go and sit with her and hold her hand and just be with her. And that was a very, um, I think, revealing time for me. And then to to come back a couple of days later and she was gone and I knew she had died, 
Um, and I, I was just really curious about what happened to Zenith. Where did she go? And you know, I was, I was young enough um, to, to have that curiosity and old enough to know that she had died. And, uh, but it really did kind of ignite a spark um, in, in my consciousness of, of just the mystery of, of death. What is that? Where is she? Uh, and then I've, I've been fortunate to, um, I, I worked as a nurse's assistant at a, a level three trauma medical center in uh, Tennessee and uh, in cardiac ICU. And I worked with people who were dying there and their families. And then I've also worked um, as a death doula with, you know, home, home visits. And it's just always truly mysterious to me and I've I've always wanted to be close to to the where to where that threshold is. Um, I don't know if I'm really saying much because it's such a big open, you know, place to wonder about about what happens and to to witness someone take their last breath and to notice the things that happen in the space around that and with the people there is of truly unique experience and it's different every time and um and it can be incredibly poetic and beautiful and i think that that's something that people don't often associate with death and is a little bit of a kind of um subversive thing to say <laughs> maybe that there can be beauty in death but i am telling you there really is it can be really amazing you're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM, Madison. That's a certified conscious dying coach and death doula, Deirdre Jenkins. We're talking today also with Karen Reppin, hospice communications professional and death cafe leader. We're talking about death cafes and conversations about dying. There's still time to give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. If you'd like to join the conversation with a question or experience. I apologize if you're hearing any construction noise there in the background. Your donations are going to work here at WRT to help do some renovations on our studios. So thank you. So we have about 10 minutes left and there's so many fascinating places we could go here. Um, and I appreciate you, Deirdre, as well, sharing your personal story uh, and how this uh, Gaining, getting closer to death, as you've talked about, has has transformed you and changed you. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about those taboos that people have about talking about death. And in your experiences in death cafes, how those are broken down, what changes you know people's comfort level, or maybe in your broader work um, that you both do as well, um, how do we, I'm getting at how we begin changing this broader cultural conversation about death and particularly those taboos about, it's not something you talk about in polite conversation. Um, Karen? Well, I think it all does come out in, in how people share their own stories because somebody might come in and just say, you know, I, I've been trying to approach this with another person, whether it's a family member, a friend, even their own physician, you know, their medical team. I, I always 
goof off with my primary care provider by just saying, hey, when are we going to have that end-of-life discussion? And he knows that if he says we're not, you know, I'll laugh at him. But it's not that funny because, you know, there's a lot of people who might come in and say, I I need to know, and I'm really suffering because I can't talk about this with certain people. And somebody else will share what has worked with them. And as I, you know, we've been saying, it's not giving advice, but it's it's sharing other experiences. And there's enough variation that sometimes people say, hey, you know, that gave me an idea. Um, I, we do encourage people by saying, you know, if you have somebody that's really, really scared to talk about this stuff, respect that. This is a terrifying thing for a lot of people. You don't know what, how they're trauma response Mm -hmm. around endings has been developed. Um, But we all kind of have it. This is not all horrible, but it's not all love and light either. There's a ton of love and light in it, if you can get through to that. It's very illuminating. But it's still grief-soaked. It's really sorrow-friendly work that we're trying to do. And so giving people permission to to not look for just the positive Uh that our culture so depends on it. Um, You know, that's where the taboo is like, oh, we don't want to talk about anything icky, even though we we surround ourselves with it, with the media. And I mean, it's just, there's so much icky. Um, But people hear other things and then they open up space. All So much about this is opening space, giving room to this topic. And then, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I am thinking of, of stories of people coming back in and saying, I had success. And it was because you said that I could go home and say to whoever, well, they'll ask me, well, where were you tonight? Well, I went to a death cafe. And they go, what? Now, that's not the same as saying, I really want to talk to you about your end-of-life wishes, or mm-hmm. we need to get our advanced directives put together, something like that. It's instead, hey, I just had cake and tea with a bunch of people I'd never met before, and we had a blast talking about death. Now that, people really can hardly resist to talk about yeah. that. Yeah, so. it, it arouses a lot of curiosity, right? Yeah. And that's a great way to break a taboo, which is uh, to talk about something differently than anybody has ever talked about it before. I think the other thing is to help educate people about why the taboo has become stronger over time. One of my great, the, the saddest statistic that I can come up with sometimes is that the turn of the 20th century, more than half of the children that were alive died before the age of 12. And people also lived in multi-generational households where birthing and dying were commonplace. People, natural burials were not natural burials. They were burials, you know. It was like you took care of your own. Um, And people died at home. They weren't shut off into an institution and the medical system didn't take care of it. And there wasn't the same, well, maybe 100 years ago or 150 years ago. Um, there was beginnings of the funeral industry and everything. But, you know, this is not a long-term permanent universal that we are so detached Mm -hmm. from end of life. And if you think about it, um, everything you eat, 
everything, I mean, you can walk on the grass and tell me you're not killing something, you know. Um, there, there, death is around us if we just are open to it. And so coming to a, a sort of a personal reconciliation with mm-hmm. that, um, without being terrified of it or remor- so remorseful, it's a pretty amazing thing. And I think taboos really don't do well with uh, liberation. So, uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. They're not compatible. No. <laughs> yeah. Deirdre, I want to give you the chance to talk about that as well, taboos and breaking them. Uh, well, yeah. I, I think that there's something about um, just putting somebody who is more reluctant to talk about death at the same table with somebody who is more willing to talk about death that there's a there's a little alchemical thing that happens there for people and also to to let people know that it really is okay wherever wherever they are uh, on the subject it's all right and also i have to say that it's really uh it i have found it to be um astonishing to find out who wants to talk about death it, it seems like a lot of people don't. But then as soon as the subject comes up, you'll have people coming up to talk about it who are completely willing to. And you would have never guessed that they would have um, been willing to. So just bringing the subject up and kind of breaking the silence in that way uh, is permission for for people to get curious or for people to actually say something they've been wanting to say. Um, and it's also, it really is transformative. I, I have to have to say that there are several people in my death cafes. I actually do host a death cafe online as well. It's not listed on the death ca- deathcafe.com website. Um, but I had a, a woman locally who came to a couple of death cafes when they first started. And I think two or three months later, she came to me and said, I am having conversations with my adult children and we are making plans about co-owning property together where I would like to go when um, at a certain time. And she said, I just want you to know that that was not on my mind before I came to the death cafe. And I wouldn't have even been open to it unless I had started having these conversations. So, I'm going to tell you, I, I did not plant any seeds with her. I just sat there and held space for the conversation to happen. And she picked that up all on her own. And, uh, and, and now that is a different reality for her. And another woman who um, this past spring, who was in her 80s, who had a twin who had died, uh, she had come to a series of death cafes that I hosted online. And at the end, she said she was a very quiet person. She participated, but she was not effusive. Um, and then uh, at the end, she said, I am really letting myself feel things I've never allowed myself to feel before uh, because I've been coming to these conversations. And she said that she'd spent her whole life like really just trying to avoid certain feelings and subjects and that at 82 years old, you know, she shows up to talk about death because of her sister 
and um, and she was immensely grateful. And you know, there was there was nothing that I did other than make a space for it to happen and to let everybody say what they needed to say. We've just got a couple minutes left, Deirdre, and I was going to close with asking you both about how you see this work changing the broader culture. And I think you just answered that question right there, <laughs> uh, you know, changing it person by person in their in people's attitudes towards death leads to different actions in their lives and how they approach relating to their family and friends about their deaths and, and what people are going to to do in relation to death. Um we have a caller real quick I want to acknowledge uh, who's not on the air now but would like to hear grief resources um, and uh, just have you both reiterate real quick uh, any particular resources that you find particularly helpful that you'd like to share. Um, anything come to mind, Karen, right off well, hand? Well, I mentioned um, The Wild Edge of Sorrow by Francis Weller. That's a, oh, a, a great book, I think. There's, there's so many... There are so many things out there. Uh, there's films, there's books, there's podcasts, there's, um, oh, just a lot. There's there's an, a book by Roshi Joan Halifax. It's um, Being with Dying, which is cultivating compassion and fearlessness in the presence of death, which I think is good. But there's, there's a lot of different things about <coughs> grief. But there's also a lot of stuff based in the dominant culture that may or may not be helpful. Um, I we're, we're gonna have to leave it yeah. there, I'm afraid. And Deirdre, um if if you have resources we could potentially post those online like websites or anything, so so let us know after we go here. But I wanna thank you both. This has been such a moving and wonderful conversation. Um, I've been talking today with Deirdre Jenkins, who's a certified conscious dying coach and death doula and leader of a death cafe in Eau Claire Eau Claire. Thank you so much, Deirdre, for joining us. Thanks, Douglas. And I've been talking with Karen Reppin, hospice communications professional and also leader of a death cafe here in Madison. Thanks so much for coming in, Karen. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I'd also like to thank today's engineer, Andrew Thomas, producer Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director, Shali Pittman. And thank you for listening here to A Public Affair. All of you out there, I'm Douglas Haynes. You've been listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. Madison, stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat.